Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be in the second paragraph in that chapter, beginning in verse 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be plenty that are scattered around the worship room, um, and, and we'd like for you to just grab one and take it home with you. If you don't have a copy, that'd be our gift to you. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, especially looking at verses 5 through 9 this morning. And what we're going to see is that these verses are about death. So if you came for a nice pick-me-up this morning, uh, maybe a, little, a, a nice little light Super Bowl Sunday feel to the sermon this morning, you're not going to get it, I'm afraid. It's, it's about death. Death is something that we're used to living with, right? I mean, it's, it's a pervasive reality. For some of you in the, in the medical profession especially, you probably see it a lot up close and personal. But even for those of us who aren't, you know, we read the news, we, we hear about people getting murdered locally, we hear about thousands of people dying in Africa from genocide and what have you. We, th- death is... Death is around us. I mean, even as I'm speaking right now, we know that there are thousands of people dying this instant across the world. But we hear about those things, and then we, you know, update our Facebook status, or we finish with dinner, or we, you know, move on along with whatever the day has. They don't, they don't necessarily pervade our thinking and, and, and shape us because it, it is so general. It's something we've just learned to live with. Such is the generality with which the wise have learned to live wrote Catholic thinker Richard Newhouse, and he continues, But then, our wisdom is shattered, not by a sudden awareness of the generality of death, but by the singularity of a death, the death of someone we love, with a love that's inseparable from life, or it's shattered by the prospect of our own dying. Newhouse is talking about something I think we've all experienced, right? There's some moments where, where the idea of death that we know is a reality, we know is out there, all of a sudden becomes real to us because someone that matters to us, someone that our life is shaped around or, or dramatically influenced by, dies. Encountering a death is an entirely different matter. I think those moments offer us clarity. They offer us an actual a look into what is really real when it comes to death, as opposed to the, the things that we just grow numb to. In those moments, in those moments it, it actually offends us that people could hear about our loved one's death or about our diagnosis that should lead to our death and just go on with their day. What are you, you're going grocery shopping after this person died? Can, you're acting like I'm not dying. In those moments, in those moments of clarity, we see what our real condition is. We see the brevity of life. We see the all-pervasive reality of death that no one can avoid and that it's coming for us and for those that we love. And in those moments, death becomes a problem for us in the same sense that it is always a problem in the Bible. We get a clear-eyed sense of what, is, of what pervades the whole Bible story, that death is the fundamental human problem that has to get solved. Death is what unites us as much as anything else about being human. That it's coming for us, we can't do anything about it, and something has got to give, or it seems like our life is meaningless. That's the perspective of the Bible. Death is central to the whole thing. And it's central to this next section of Hebrews. The paragraph we're going to read for today, and and some of the verses that we'll be in next week. Hebrews so far has been looking at why Jesus is offering us something we can't get from any other source. It's an argument for holding fast to him, for not letting go of him because he is unique. 
he offers a salvation no one else does. And, and so far, that case has really focused on his exaltation. You know, he is higher than even the highest things you can imagine. Even the spiritual beings like the angels, Jesus is above them. He is above them because he is God himself. He's the reason there's something and not nothing. He's created everything that is, and he lives forever while everything else just comes and goes. That's the case so far. But now, the author gets back to that case and takes a different line on it. It's not so much about Jesus' exaltation. Now he's going to show us that Jesus matters for us in a way nothing else can because Jesus has come low to us. Not only is he exalted above the angels, but he has become lower than the angels for a time to identify with us and to take on what is our greatest enemy, to take on death itself. We're going to look at at this subject, this this new turn in what the author to Hebrews is writing about this week and next week. But this week, we really want to focus in on death and try to understand as much as we can the nature of the problem. That This author is going to help us to understand why death matters so much. Because sometimes it just becomes so general to us, we probably haven't really thought carefully about it and, and what it is that, that's behind the angst we feel when we think about death. We all, we're all afraid of it at some level. We all have experienced some deep protest against it when it's taken someone that we love. I think this author is going to help us know why there's such a deep-centered resentment of death. We're going to understand the problem better. And then we're going to understand Jesus as the solution to that problem. That Jesus' death offers us a promise. A promise that death itself is now dead because because of him. That's where we're headed this morning. Those are our two main subjects. Our death is a problem. Jesus' death is a promise. Would you stand with me now if you found the passage from Hebrews chapter 2? As we read together from verses 5 to 9, and then I'm also going to jump ahead and read from verses 14 and 15, because we're going to look ahead to those uh, at a couple different points this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, I mentioned before, we're starting with, with this simple fact. Our death is a problem. And you're probably thinking, I mean, you didn't work that hard on your outline this week. Of course death is a problem. And, and I probably didn't work as hard as I should have on the outline this week. You're probably right. But I, there's more to this sentence than meets the eye. Death is a very particular kind of problem for us. Yeah, it's a problem because it causes us pain. Yes, it's a problem because it's inconvenient and mysterious to us, and, and it hangs over us as this cloud, this, this threat. It, it is a problem, but, there's, but from the perspective of the Bible, and this passage in Hebrews in particular, death is a very specific kind of problem. 
Death is an enemy that stands against everything we were made for. Death is an enemy that stands against everything that we were made for. I want to follow the author's train of thought as he sets this up. He goes, like, like we've seen him do before, he goes to the Psalms to try to make his point. He, introduced, he, he takes us back to chapter 1 saying, now it was not to the angels. Remember we were talking about angels back in chapter 1. He's, he's, he's giving us a clue. We're going back there, back to this argument about why Jesus is better. And now we're also talking about the world to come, the one in which Jesus reigns forever. Also something he mentioned in chapter 1. Now his subject is shifting a little bit. And he takes us to our own condition by taking us to Psalm chapter 8. Those verses that we just read, maybe you, maybe you recognize them as we're reading them. Psalm 8 is one of the most famous psalms. It's, it's one of the, the Old Testament's classic explanations of who we are as humans and why we matter. What, it, what he's doing in, in taking us back to this statement about why we matter, and then in building to verse 8 where he says, but we don't see what's described here in, in Psalm 8. It's not, it's not in our experience yet. Is he setting up a contrast, a deep contrast between our purpose what we're for and what we see in reality. Our purpose and what we see in reality. So our purpose, he quotes Psalm 8. Psalm 8 begins with an age-old question that's asked by every philosopher that's worth his salt and every major religion tries to get at the same thing. What are we here for? You know, why do we exist? What gives us abilities that other beings don't have? Is there some purpose behind our ability, behind whatever uniqueness we're able to look at? What is man and the son of man that you have thought of him? His answer is that, the, is that of the Bible's entire story. We're here to rule in God's image, to represent him on earth and care for and cultivate and watch over what he's made. That's what he's getting at in verse 7. It's from Psalm 8, but he's quoting it in verse 7. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, you've given him this, this high position, and you've subjected everything to him. You put everything under his feet. You've put humankind at the top of the pecking order in the universe and given them a job of, of bringing everything into subjection to them. I mean, that's a, that's a very formal way of saying simply God has made us custodians of what he has made. That's, it's, it's referring back to the first chapter of Genesis where, where the author's explaining where the world came from and how it all fits into what God is up to. And he, he concludes a whole chain of things that God made with humankind at the pinnacle of that different from everything else that he's made because they are made in his image and given the job of ruling for him over the things that he's made. So Genesis chapter 1 says, go out and take dominion over the things that I've made. That's what he's referring to here. Our purpose is to rule for God, not to exploit it. Don't go there. Don't go to the, don't go to the, uh, to the justifications for you know, destroying the earth and doing whatever we want to with it because it's really ours to, to, to do with what we will. That's not what he's saying. He's saying do with the world what God has done with it. Cultivate it. Care for it. Create in it. That's our purpose. But then verse 8 of Hebrews 2 calls our attention to a different reality altogether. So it starts with this summary of the psalm. You know, in case you missed the psalm, verse 8 says, In putting everything into subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's the, that's the payoff of the psalm. We were put here to rule. But here's the contrast. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. We're not in control of everything. We're not in dominion over it. What is he getting at here? He means, I think, that things happen to us we can't predict or avoid. He means there's such a thing as hurricanes that put entire cities underwater and put people out of their homes and 
kill. He means that there are tsunamis, that there's disease, that people get cancer that can't be cured. He's talking about things that instead of being subjected to us, we are in subjection to. Things happen to us. But I think ultimately, even more, what he's thinking of is primarily death. What he's thinking of is death. Now, I know he doesn't say it here. And you'd be right to question me on this point. It's like, where's he, going, where's he getting death out of this? There's no death reference here. But in the, in the rest of the passage that we read just a minute ago, in the next verse when he talks about Jesus and Jesus solving this problem that, that what's purposed and promised doesn't fit the reality, he talks about Jesus' death. And then later on in, in verses 14 and 15, he's talking about Jesus destroying the one who had the power of death. But here's the key in verse 15. Here's what he, how he describes our condition. And I think this is a, a way of saying the same thing that he said in verse 8. He describes us as, in, as, as subject through the fear of death to a lifelong slavery. Through the fear of death, we're subject to a lifelong slavery. And here's what I think he's getting at. When he sets up this contrast between Psalm 8 and us ruling in, in God's image over all that is, and verse, or excuse me, between Psalm 8 and verse 8, where he says at present we just don't see it, what he's saying is that at present we're subject to slavery. Far from ruling over everything, we exist at the mercy of death that, that is in complete control over us. That no matter what we do, no matter how much order we bring to the world, no matter how much our technology advances, we, we have no control over it. It's still coming for us. Death is a kind of slavery because there's nothing we can do about it. Is, anything, is there anything, really, in our experience that exposes our powerlessness, our helplessness, as much as death does? I mean, I, I don't know much. I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist, or whatever. I don't know much about those stages of grief that you always hear about, the five stages of grief. But I know that the first few of them are really boil down to this, this em- the emphasis of coming to grips with your powerlessness, you know, that you, that you hear about the death and you deny it. It can't be true. I mean, the, I didn't choose this. I didn't sign up for this, so it can't be, right? And then it's, it's anger. I, I won't have it. I'm not ready to die. And then it's depression when it sinks in and you realize there's nothing you can do about it. Death exposes our powerlessness, our slavery to something outside of ourselves as much as anything else in human experience. One of the things that, that, uh, that, uh, that I think exposes this well to us, just a sort of vivid image of it, is what happened to Steve Jobs. Just started in on this biography of him the, that came out last year, right after he died. Um, I'm an Apple geek. I love their stuff. I lo- I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs. And I think if there's anyone who illustrates what it is to exist in the image of God, it's Steve Jobs, right? Because Steve Jobs has created... He has brought order out of chaos that was the personal computing industry. He, he, is, he has applied the insight and creativity that, that God gave him that reflect what God is like. And he's, he's changed things. He changed music forever. He changed personal computing forever. He's, he's now potentially changed textbooks forever. He, he brought order out of chaos. That's what it is to be in the image of God, to, to cultivate and to care for and to create in the world that we're bringing into subjection to ourselves. And, of course, he was an uber-control freak, down to the the, the nth detail. He was what it looks like to bring this kind of... He was Psalm 8 in a very common grace sort of way. And Steve Jobs applied to his cancer the same kind of tenacity that he applied to his desire to change the music forever, right? He fought it hard, but it got him. At the end of the day, death came for him, and he was its slave, He had no more control over the terms on which he died than a stillborn baby. 
ultimately, I don't know that there's any generation of, of humans that have had more control over, their, over the world that we're living in than, than ours. In the last couple hundred years, science has, has advanced to such an extent that we know how to get a, a several, I don't know how many ton hunk of metal flying at 30,000 feet. Can you imagine the author to the Hebrews thinking about that possibility? It doesn't make sense. It does, though, if you've, if you've taken some ownership over the way the world works. Think of modern medicine. We have now extended life expectancy into, into numbers, statistics that couldn't have been even imaginable to the author of Hebrews. We have taken control in some sense, over disease. But death, mortality is still at 100%, right? And honestly, the, the, the stuff we do to extend life expectancy, the kinds, of, the kinds of ways of keeping people alive even when their body is basically dead, I think is death just mocking us and our attempts to ward it off. Ultimately, we haven't gotten any closer. Death has us in its grip and a kind of slavery to it. And in that sense, death mocks exactly what we're made for. Because we're made to have dominion. We're made to, to have everything in subjection to us and to rule it on God's behalf. That's our design. That's our purpose. And death calls all of that into question. It's commonly, you, you often hear people urging us to accept death, you know. Death is just part of life, right? It's just part of that cycle. And, and to some extent, I think that that's probably true. But in a deeper sense, from the perspective of Christianity and, and of Hebrews chapter 2, that is very, very wrong. Death is not something we're to accept. It is fundamentally unnatural. It is, it is a stain or a mockery of everything that we were meant to be. Death is an imposter. It is a weapon that's wielded as a puppet king almost for the one who opposes everything that is good who can't take down God himself and so applies himself to God's image and gets it every time. Death is not natural. It is a mockery of everything we were made for. But it's a weapon that's yielded by an enemy whose days are numbered, who has already received the death blow, who's like a, a, a wasp that's been crushed. And Stinger still has some power but it's not for long. Ultimately, the promise of Hebrews chapter 2 is that even though there's this disjunction between what we're made for and what we actually see in reality, something altogether new has happened that has changed that state forever. That's verse 9. Jesus' death is a problem, or promise. If our death is a problem, because it calls into question everything that we're, we're meant for, Jesus' death is a promise. That's verse 9. I'm going to try to read it again, then we're going to walk through it together. So remember, at present, here's what we don't see. Everything in subjection to us. We don't see what we were made for as a reality. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What we do see is the one who took on flesh and blood for us and who through death destroyed the one who had the power of, the death, of death. That's verse 14 and delivered all of those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. We're in slavery. Jesus has delivered us because he's dealt a death blow to death. That's the promise of this text. Now, I want us to get further into it so you can see it a little more clearly. Let's walk through verse 9. Remember that, that we've said this many times already in looking at Hebrews, that, that the author really loves to pull from the Old Testament and show how Jesus is what the Old Testament was really about. 
that, that he fulfills the kinds of things talked about there. That's exactly what he's doing in verse 9. He's not necessarily quoting from Psalm 8 here, but he's, he's, he's alluding to it through these key words that, that we know are drawn from it to basically say, Psalm 8 is what we were made for. Jesus is now, in reality, what we were meant for and don't see in our reality. Death keeps us, at this point, from being who we were meant for. Jesus is that thing right now. That's, that's what verse 9 is about. Follow the logic with me. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. This is him connecting Jesus to that description of our status. Humankind is lower than the angels in sort of the pecking order. Jesus, we know from chapter 1, was not lower than the angels. He created the angels, but for a little while, he's been made lower than them. It's basically the same point as made in verse 14 where he says that the children share in flesh and blood and he likewise took on the same things. Jesus became like us, lower than the angels. And we see him who was made lower, no longer lower, but now highly exalted. Pulling on that phrase that we were meant for, right? We were meant to be crowned with glory and honor above all other creatures and to rule them in God's image. Just like us, Jesus, just like was meant for us, rather, Jesus is now highly exalted and crowned with glory. And here's the kicker. The reason that Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor in the position that was meant for us and that we failed to reach has everything to do with his death. Do you get that in verse 9? The reason, he's crowned with glory and honor because the reason is of the suffering of death. His wasn't just any death, right? Far from the defeat at the hands of our enemy, his death was a blow against death itself. Do you notice that irony? The irony here? That he can be crowned, that he can be highly exalted through suffering, through death, And we're told a few verses later, again, back in verse 15, that through death he destroys the one who holds the power of death. How does this work? We're we're used to, we we get this phrase that he tastes death for everyone. And and that's not something that's totally foreign to us. We see movies like Braveheart and we see this guy dying for his cause. He's sort of tasting death for these people that he he believes in, whose freedom that he wants. But but this is not that kind of thing at all. That, That death was inspirational. It was meant to encourage them to lay their lives on the line. Jesus' death, though, it seems like from this verse, isn't just inspiring us to something, but actually accomplishing something for us. It does something. It's outside of us. It's not about the effect it has in us, the inspiration to go and do likewise, but the, but the, the thing that it does for us that's always outside of us and gets given to us. How does that work? How does he taste death for everyone in this sense? Well, Hebrews doesn't help us a lot on this. I think that the writer of Hebrews expected that the people he's writing to already were familiar with this idea. And he was probably not far off. One of the the most, probably the most popular argument for where this letter was meant for was Rome. We don't know. It doesn't say it anywhere. But for lots of reasons I won't give you now, uh, I'd say a a majority, if not almost consensus of people who are experts in the New Testament think that it was written to Christians in Rome. So, if that's true, these guys would have had Paul's letter to the Romans. They, they, weren't, they weren't newbies. They already had some sense of how this worked. They would have read what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, which I'll just refer you to and, and encourage you to read today if you haven't read it in a while. I'm not going to go to it. I'm just going to sort of summarize it for you. In Romans chapter 5, Paul draws this contrast between Adam, through whom sin and death enter the world, and Jesus, through whom death is killed once and for all. How Jesus can taste death 
for everyone else has everything to do with where death gets its power. Pulling from Romans chapter 5, Paul says there that death, the power of death is sin. The way that Paul and the rest of the biblical writers understand how death came into the world is through a sort of bait and switch that we're offered an opportunity to sin. We're offered some sort of pleasure, you know, some sort of opportunity for self-advancement like Adam and Eve got in that story. We're offered something that seems attractive to us, and when we latch hold to it, there's a hook in it, and the hook is death. Sin is like a Trojan horse that promises one thing and delivers something else. The power of death, Paul says, is sin. And through Adam, death spread to all men, he says, because all sinned. We all bit the same hook. Jesus turns the tables. Jesus turns the tables with a sort of bait and switch of his own. Because Jesus came to earth taking on our humanity and died a death. But he died a death without ever having bit, having having swallowed the bait of sin. He died a death, in other words, that he didn't deserve to die. He paid a penalty or a debt that wasn't his to pay. I say it's kind of a bait and switch because you can almost imagine, and we're getting a little imaginative here, but I think it's okay just to help us connect with this. You can almost imagine our enemy, the devil, seeing Jesus, wanting to overthrow him, intending to use his ultimate weapon to do just that, and taking Jesus' life. But in taking his life, what, what the devil didn't calculate on, what he didn't realize was happening, is that he was taking a life that wasn't his to take, a life that wasn't owed, a life that was so supremely valuable and perfect that it became a sacrifice good enough to wipe out the sin of everyone who had ever sinned. When he latched hold of someone who wasn't his, he took out someone whom death could not hold. And when Jesus is now highly exalted, a reference to his resurrection, to the fact that death couldn't hold him in the grave, what we see there is that Jesus has now used up the power of death. Whatever power it had to hold us in the grave because of our sin has now been erased because Jesus' death was so perfect as a sacrifice that it wiped clean all sins that gave death its power. And so now, rather than living in slavery to it, we look ahead to a death that's coming for us, but that's not ultimate, a death that's powerless because Jesus has used all of its power up. Jesus is presented to us here, in other words, as tasting death for everyone and as destroying the one who had the power of death through it. The author, I think, is just telling, is, his point is pretty simple. We need to focus on what we see. What we don't see is everything in subjection to us, us living without fear, without the dread of death. What we, what we, what we don't see is a life free from slavery to death. What we do see is someone who death couldn't hold, someone who even now sits at the right hand of the Father because his death was so perfect that it wiped clean all of its power. What we do see is this, and the whole Christian hope boils down to it, that in Christ's death we have what Puritan John Owen calls the death of death itself. Look at Jesus, who died but is exalted now, and know that he's exalted for us just as he died for us. That what he, where he is now, he is for us and as a token of where we will be. Of course, we don't see it yet. 
death is still coming for us and there's nothing we can do to stop it. We're still going to die. But we see Jesus exalted and we know that our hope is in him. And we know that because he tasted death for us, he is tasting right now resurrection life for us. He is what Paul calls the first fruits from the dead. The proof that what he says is going to happen to us will actually happen to us. So here's where I want to drill this down. If you're here this morning and, and this sounds great to you, but you just can't commit to it because it just seems too, it seems too out there. You're, you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and the lack of tangible evidence for things like the resurrection is exactly what keeps you back. What I want to encourage you to do, as quickly as you possibly can, is to look into this issue of Jesus' resurrection carefully. I think what you'll find is that the evidence for it is a lot better than you thought it was. In fact, I think what you'll find is that it has evidence for it that is far stronger than the evidence for most of the things we believe about what happened during the time that Jesus lived. All the other ancient histories we have about what's going on in Rome, you know, the kinds of the, the wars and the emperors and the Caesars and all that, the, the, the stuff that we just take for granted and learn in world history classes, it's, it has evidence for it that is much weaker on the same terms than evidence that we have for the, for the resurrection of Jesus. I don't have time to go over it all this morning, but I want you to really think carefully about this. There's a good reason to believe Jesus is alive today. And if he is alive today, if that's true, then everything else he says has to be believed. And don't you want it to be true? I mean, ultimately, even if, even if it's a tough pill for you to swallow, don't you want this to be true? It is true. It is. Jesus is alive. Turn from your sin and trust in him and you can live too. Now, if you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning... I want, to, I want to point you back to what we talked about last week. You know, all along we've been seeing that Hebrews is written not just as a sort of treatise on what Jesus is like and what makes him glorious, but as an argument on the basis of the glory of Jesus to trust in him more, to look to him more deeply, and to not waver from him. And so last week that was, we looked at the first in-depth case for that. I want to go back to that now and say what, what the author was getting at is this right here. If you want to look closely at Jesus because the gospel seems irrelevant to you right now, because it seems distant or abstract, it doesn't seem to have any, any uh, real meaning or make a difference in your life because it doesn't help you do the things you've got to do to get through the day anymore. If that's the way you're feeling, it makes sense on one level. I understand why you feel that way. But let me tell you this. I think the reason you feel that way is because you aren't thinking about your death nearly enough. If you thought about the fact that you're actually going to die, you don't know when that is, but it's certain, and it's coming. Then the gospel takes on a whole new resonance. The gospel is never more beautiful to me than when I think about my own death. When I think about the fact that people are dying now at a reasonable age whom I knew when they were my age. And that doesn't seem like that long ago. When you consider the fact that time flies like that. You need to think about your death or the gospel is never going to make much sense to you. Because ultimately, even though it's practical and and it does have trickle-down effects on how you manage your relationships and raise your kids and and be effective in college and stuff like that, even though it does have trickle-down, ultimately those aren't the problems it's primarily addressed to. It is addressed to the problem that you're going to die. You need to think about that or Jesus is never going to appear to you in all his beauty. But if you want to know what it means to look more closely at Jesus, like he urged us at the beginning of chapter 2, then look here. 
Because it's true that we don't see everything in subjection to us. We don't know the circumstantial peace that we want to know. We still have to fear things that happen to us that are outside of our control. That's true. But what we do see, what we do see is Jesus made lower for a time to taste death for us, now exalted for us to a place that is impenetrable by the gates of hell. They will never be able to touch it. It is secure, made secure because he has dealt death a death blow. And where he sits now, in his resurrection, is a token of what's coming for us. One of my favorite books for thinking about the Christian life, because of the vivid images it gives us, is, um, is an old Puritan book called The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it before, it's, it's wonderful. It's worth your time. It's really clunky in its language. That's why I'm not going to quote from it today. But it's, it's worth the work. And there's a copy of it back on the resource table. You can just take it if you don't have it. In The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes... Uh, in, in the form of a story of a, of a man named Christian walking through his life trying to get to the celestial city. And along the way, he has these sort of prototypical experiences that reflect what it's like to live in the world as a Christian. And, of course, not surprisingly, the, near, the, near the end, one of the scenes is death. Christian has to die. And death is portrayed as a river, a really deep, fast, rushing river that separates Christian and his companions from the celestial city that they can see on the other side. And the thing about this river is that not only can it sweep you up and carry you over, and not only can it, can it, can it come over your head like, like waves washing over you, but the ground to the river, and whether or not you can feel it, is directly related to how clearly you can see the promises that Jesus has made to you. It's a beautiful way of thinking about the Christian life and, and about our perspective on death, I think. So as Christian and his friend Hopeful move into the waters, immediately Christian is, is overwhelmed by fear and he can't feel the bottom. And he, and he describes the water rushing over him and threatening to drown him. He can feel himself being pulled away by it. He's lost sight, in other words, of Christ standing there and calling for him. Christ who's already seated where, where Christian is meant for. And so his friend Hopeful calls out to him. He reminds him of Jesus and that he stands ready to take him, to receive him. And as he thinks on the promises of Jesus and what he offers, all of a sudden Christian can feel the ground under his feet again. The waters become shallow and he's able to move through them. He still has to die, right? He has to go through the, through the river. There's no bridge over it. There's no, there's no way to go around it. He's got to go through it. And we do too. That river is waiting for us. But as we look to it, it's a river that will be crossed and will be crossed with confidence, directly depending on how clearly we're able to lay hold of the promises that Jesus has made to us. The promise that while we don't see everything in subjection to us, we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned now with glory because he's tasted death for everyone. Lord, help us to see it. Oh, we need you to give us glasses that won't fog up when we're confronted with the cares of the world, with the day in and the day out. Would you help us to see our mortality as a gift, to, to, see, to, to give us a clear vision of our mortality as a gift that reminds us of the impermanence of this world and the folly of investing anything here that, that isn't directly meant for obedience to you and to glorify your name. And with a clear picture of our death, would you give us an even clearer picture of Jesus as the solution to that problem? Would you help us to trust in him and to rest in him and to live without fear, to live 
not enslaved by the power of death because of him. Thank you for Jesus. Now help us to live in him, we pray in his name. Amen.